morning, everybody. Welcome. If you are just joining us for today for the baby dedications or you're just checking us out, it's so good to see you. Uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm an elder here at Hope Lower Town. And I, uh, if you are visiting real quick, just you can tune out for this part. I've got to say something to our church. Um, okay, this is to the church. Nobody else. I love you guys so much. Um, we have, I, I mean, we have felt so loved and cared for as we've welcomed little baby Chase into the world here. And um, just appreciate your prayers and your kindness and the meal train and everything so much. And I had to say that. Um, okay, everybody can tune back in now. Uh, it is my joy to be back in the pulpit and preaching. We are in a sermon series called uh, A White Elephant Christmas, this Christmas season here. Um, and we're talking about white elephant gifts, which are basically this idea that we looked at last week of, of something a white elephant, a king would give to someone else. And it was kind of useless, expensive to maintain um, in relation to its cost, its usefulness. Um, and, and you couldn't get rid of it. Um, I don't know if you guys play the white elephant gift game. We're actually doing it with our small group coming up here. Um, and then uh, we sometimes play a dice game with my family where the big prize is wrapped and you're like, oh, I want the big prize. And then it's like a sombrero that is very sequined. And you're like, I didn't want the big prize, but that's the white elephant gift. And so often it's a nebulous tradition. It kind of, we just, people just start doing this white elephant gift thing. And, um, and uh, it just happened. It, was an, it reminded me of another nebulous tradition, which is Hallmark movies. I don't know if anyone tunes into these Hallmark movies. Um, it seemed, those are all different movies, by the way, if you look at the picture there. Uh, that is not the same movie. Um, that does actually, this was a, by a guy named uh, Dave Addy, um, who put this together, this collage in 2017 and 2019. He put this one together because they just keep making them. Uh, again, looks like the exact same movie. And then even still... Another one I found, it just gets bigger and bigger. The Hallmark movies keep coming and it just seemingly keeps to be uh, a white couple with green and red on that found their joy in Christmas. And it's funny though, they, have, they always have the same plot. I think that's the joke with this collage is they always have the same plot. It's a workaholic, maybe a busy businesswoman or a busy businessman has to kind of go back to their hometown for some reason. And, and then they meet the quirky but fun, like slower paced person. And right away, they don't like them and they're abrasive. But then all of a sudden, they come to like them. And, and all of a sudden, they realize, oh, what I really needed in life was just to slow down and just kind of settle into this quaint hometown and, and run my dad's tree farm again or whatever. Like, just like that's so, but that, uh, it's just the kind of the way it goes. The slowed down life is the hero of the story ultimately. And, and so we celebrate Christmas. And, but uh, um, so that's what we're looking at this week though. Is it the slowed down life? How do we have joy in the chaos of life and this week's sermon is Jesus is our joy in the chaos. We'll be looking at Matthew 11 and a bunch of other verses. And so uh, before we do that, though, I wanted to start off with uh, a quote from a woman named Fleming Rutledge on the Advent season, the Christmas season. She says this, for many years, I had thought that during Advent, one was supposed to pretend that Jesus hadn't been born so that we would be more excited when Christmas came. Needless to say, this stratagem didn't work. For me, it was a revelation years later to learn that the last weeks of Pentecost and the first weeks of Advent look forward to the second coming of Christ. In Advent, we don't pretend as I once thought that we are in darkness before the birth of Christ. Rather, we take a good hard look at the darkness we are in right now, 
facing and defining it honestly so that we will understand with utmost clarity that our great hope and only joy is in Jesus's final victorious coming. She says, the more we face the darkness now, the more clear our hope in Jesus becomes, the more clear he becomes to us. And so in this holiday season, in the seasons of life in the world, we expect joy. And just some definitions of joy in the Bible, happiness over an unanticipated or present good, extreme happiness with which the believer contemplates salvation, feeling or source of great happiness, a lot of happiness language here, rejoicing, response, reward, strength, and rejoicing in God's presence. That's the most fullness of joy depicted in the Bible. We see Joy talked about with wine, weddings, feasting, these kinds of things at the end of the harvest. Um, and one thing I would add is, I, is joy is hard to take away. Uh, happiness is fleeting, uh, but joy is hard to take away. We expect joy though, but we often get chaos. And I'm going to look at a little later, three types of the chaos that we face in the world and in our lives. We get the chaos of the grind, the toil we'll look at, um, the chaos of our hearts, they're broken and the chaos of our world, it's fallen. And, and so uh, we have this kind of in the Christmas season, in the day-to-day -day life, in our hearts, in our world, we see this chaos that life is often the anti-Hallmark movie, that things don't get better, they don't seem to get better, there doesn't seem to be harmony, there doesn't seem to be joy, we often want to give up, and our hair isn't perfect. Well, some of ours is, mine's not. Um, Chase's is. You see our baby? He's got a full head of hair. Um, anyway, uh, but how do we get here? Is this the way it's supposed to be in the world, in our hearts, in our relationships? Is there supposed to be this chaos? Are we supposed to be in this seemingly never-ending grind? And for that, I want to look at the storyline of the Bible. Uh, if you're new, we've, uh, we always talk about the Bible as a storyline. If we read it from uh, left to right, we get creation. In the beginning, God created and it was good. We get the fall and sin enters the world, redemption and restoration. We're gonna just look at them and define that briefly here. First creation, at the end of Genesis 2, it says this. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And this is just one illustration of the goodness of creation, presence of God in the Garden of Eden, harmony and relationship, complete vulnerability and openness and intimacy, harmony with the creation, unbridled joy with one another, and no such thing as shame. And that lasts one page in the Bible. We couldn't get more than a page? We get to the fall. This is after Adam and Eve sinned and God responds to them. He says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instead of openness and, and intimacy, hiding and shame. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then we get these words from God. After he curses the serpent, he says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit from the tree 
about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So what we see there right away off the bat when human beings sin is that sin causes chaos. It disrupts the harmony and the joy between human beings and God and even human beings in their work, their labor, human beings in the creation and human beings in one another. No more perfect harmony, no more perfect joy. Sin and death and chaos, the grind, the toil, hearts, are incomplete. And this world is fallen and broken. But we're not stuck there. God always has his eye on redemption. In Romans chapter eight, we get a little insight into why might God have done this this way? Verse 18 of Romans eight, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And now he's going to talk about why God did this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God that they were shut out of the garden because God had a greater plan in store, a greater hope for us, a plan that he would liberate us from our bondage to sin and from death and from the chaos of this world because he's always looking to redeem. And we see that redemption described this way in Ephesians. It says of Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So God's redemption plan centers on Christ and his blood and his forgiveness. And he's planning to bring unity and order to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in Christ, the chaos is going to come to an end. And it's described like this when we look at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, it says this. Then I saw, this is the apostle John having a revelation, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, King Jesus said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We sung and we wait on the second advent. That was what Fleming Rutledge talked about, that we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. 
We're in what theologians will often describe in these big words of already, not yet. Jesus has already come. He's already won the redemption. But we're still in this world of chaos. We still struggle with sin. We still go after other things than Jesus. We're in the already, not yet. And it is exhausting. It's exhausting. So how do we have joy in this life in the already not yet? How do we have joy in the midst of the chaos? How do we, at one hand, be exhausted and the other hand, be expectant? Exhausted that we're facing up to the reality, that we're lamenting the pain of this world, that it is incomplete, that we are incomplete and at the same time expectant. We know that Jesus is gonna make all things new. He's gonna make us completely new in him, so therefore we remain hopeful. But how do we have more joy? What about if we just life hack our way to joy? This, I got this from lifehack.org. Um, why is life all about life hacks now? I was telling Brian earlier today, if I had to get rid of the how to do X search in Google or YouTube, I'd be pretty much helpless as a human being. Um, so we need this, right? So I'm not condemning life hacks, but I'm wondering, can we life hack our way to joy? This article is called Finding Joy in Life, and it offered a few things, some that I think are helpful, some I think maybe are less helpful. Stay in the present. Change up your routine. Become the main character. Are you guys the main character yet? Um, treat yourself. Volunteer. Learn to let go. Some of these things do help bring joy. But can they bring lasting joy? Sometimes, this, sometimes in religious circles, we... You might hear, oh, we got to get back to the Sabbath. We got to get back to just one day a week. If I just rest one day a week, then the joy's coming back. And I just don't think that more rules, it brings joy. When's the last time more rules brought more joy? We look to, when we look to ourselves and our circumstances for joy, we just get more sin because oftentimes we're the ones contributing and causing the chaos. And I don't think we can muster up joy. So we need to be able to look somewhere else. We need to be able to say, what if real joy isn't just from changed circumstances? But in being changed in your circumstances by Jesus, what does it look like to come to Jesus? In Matthew 11, it says this, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, this is right after some people had believed in him. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, the things of salvation, from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus is rejoicing. He has joy. What brings him joy? Father, you don't want to save the impressive. And the ones who have it all together, you want little children, you want to save those who are willing to come to me. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
when we think about yoke, um, this is kind of the illustration from the Greek word in the, in the Bible of this idea of being yoked together under the same yoke, pulling the same weight. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. So coming to Jesus means trusting in his grace. It means accepting his yoke of grace. It means we don't need life hacks or new circumstances. What we really need is a savior. Okay, okay, where do we see this then? I want to look at Luke chapter 17, just a quick story. A little background here. In the context, lepers are unclean people in the religious system of the day. And Jesus, as a rabbi, as a teacher, is a clean person who shouldn't be approached. Lepers are meant to stay away. Jesus is clean and honored. Lepers are shamed. It says this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Lepers, when they would start to heal, would go to the priest and be declared available, able, capable to come back into the community, back into the fold. But if they weren't clean yet, they had to stay as outcasts. As they go, they're clean, they're cleansed. He continues, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. I love that it says loud voice. Luke wants us to really understand this. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. This would have shocked the original hearer. Jesus asked, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So this leper experiences new circumstances. He goes from unclean to clean, from in shame to no shame. He's healed. But he's not content with just the new circumstances. He has to turn and go back and praise Jesus. There's something about Jesus that is greater than just being healed. He experiences Jesus's lavish grace and responds to it with praise. It is God's grace that gives us joy in any circumstances. In Christ, we get God himself, and that is where the ultimate joy comes from. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. When we take the Gospels as a whole, thinking about Jesus and coming to him for grace, when we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly? So when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what do we see most glaringly about Jesus? He says, yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings. Yes, he is the one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. Yes, he is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of his day. To diminish any of these is to step outside of vital historic orthodoxy. But the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, 
the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the, is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. The Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, forgives us. We call that grace. But we have this chaos. We have the chaos of the grind. Some of the things we were talking about this week, um, the hope of having perfectly curated memories in the Christmas season, having the family time go perfect, getting the right photos, having your kid that's potty training not poop in front of the tree. That's a long story someone shared with us this week. <laughs> Oftentimes, we don't get the perfect memories. We don't have the perfect family experiences. What about going to all the parties? Man, it's tough when you go to a Christmas party and you leave feeling lonely and unseen. What about trying not to disappoint people, picking the right gift, meeting everyone's expectations, or catching all the deals, preserving the family traditions perfectly? having a perfect and conflict-free family time. It doesn't look that way. We have chaos. And it's a grind. Maybe it snows 14 inches. That's a grind. Oh my gosh. Psalm 73 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we have the chaos of the grind, we get to this place where our flesh and our hearts, not that they may fail, they do fail. The things we hope for in the grind, whether the Christmas season or the grind of life, let us down. But Jesus offers his yoke of grace to those of us stuck in the grind. He is our strength. He's our portion. You know, so often we think that coming to the end of ourselves being unable to do something, accomplish something, be something. We think coming to the end of ourselves is abject failure. Coming to the end of ourselves is holy ground. It's where we meet Jesus. That's why the gospel is good news. You have to become a little child. You have to realize I can't save myself. My flesh and my heart have failed. I sin over and over again. I'm facing death as a consequence. I need you, Jesus. I'm at the end of myself. I need you. And guess who's there waiting for us? Our Savior. What about the chaos of our hearts? Maybe you've got broken dreams. You're lamenting missed opportunities in this holiday season. Maybe you have a persistent sin that you feel trapped by. Something you just can't seem to shake. Maybe you're dealing with heavy shame. Maybe you're holding a grudge. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you have a wound that just seems to shadow you. The holiday season can be so difficult, so lonely, so challenging. I have to clarify this is actually Psalm 34, 18. I got the verse wrong there, but it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus offers his yoke of grace to those of us who are brokenhearted. He's near. What about the chaos of the world? 
What about the constant barrage of breaking news, more evil, more violence, more death, more suffering, more disasters, more disease? Of that, we can go to Romans 8. How do we persevere in this world, Jesus? It says, Romans 8, 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus offers his yoke of grace to us in a broken world. He gives us a hope that overcomes, a trust that he is going to make us new and all things new, that he is Lord over all, that no circumstance can separate us from his love. As he's leaving his disciples, he says this in John 16, I've told you these things. Why have you given us these words, Jesus? I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. And then he says, one of the truest things ever spoken in this world, you will have trouble. He says, the second thing that's the truest thing ever spoken, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That in the grace of Jesus, we have peace. We have joy in the chaos, but we have to ask something. How did he overcome the world? Jesus overcame the world by coming to us as an infant, living the perfect life and dying on the cross for you and me. He went into the grave on our behalf and then he walked out of it. He overcame the world by his death. That's the beauty of the Advent season, that Christ came to us and for us to bring joy to the world. We sang about it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. He overcomes the world by his death. This is the beauty of the Advent season. One theologian says this, and this is really something. He says, of this incarnation of this cross, Christ who in eternity rested motherless upon the father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. O oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us.
Friends, this is grace. We cannot ascend to him. He descends to us. God always has a redemption plan. So let's go back to this verse for a second. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, not bring to me. He doesn't need our works. He doesn't need our impressiveness. He doesn't need our brave face. He just wants us to come to him because in him we find everything we need. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I haven't met a person yet that isn't weary and burdened. Every day we wake up and fight new battles. It's exhausting in the chaos. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. You can't manufacture rest. You can't manufacture joy. I will give it to you. Come to me. When we realize the story and we read it rightly, we see Jesus is the gift. And we are the white elephant gift. We're the thing that who would want to bring home? Jesus does. He wants the white elephant gift. He wants us to come to him, to put our faith in him, to receive forgiveness, reconciliation to God, and a hope that one day all things are going to be made new. Grace, this grace is not a hurdle we jump over. We stand in front of the hurdle and he walks to us. This grace, this Jesus for weary and burdened sinners like us is what we need for joy in the midst of chaos. Jesus gives us himself. He's the gift. And knowing him can cause us to sing with joy in the midst of chaos. I, just to close here, uh, love, love being the dad of a newborn. And one of the most precious times is in the middle of the night. Uh, just holding him, rocking him in the chair. And I sit over him and I, I have expectant hope for him. As, as all the parents here declared, we want our children to know Jesus. I'm sitting over him and I'm, I'm holding him and I, what I think I want for him or what I, what I would think I want for him is an easy life, a comfortable life, success, good education, minimal problems, a good job, family, kids, all of that. I think that's what I would want for him. But as I hold him in the middle of the night and God works on my heart, all I want, all I want is for him to know Jesus. That's why Brian cries when he dedicates kids. Because in my 34 years, by God's grace, I've learned that nothing 
will satisfy. Nothing will save except Jesus. And when you learn that, when we realize that, he is our joy and that joy, no matter our circumstances, cannot be taken away. So as we close, I just wanna say, come to Jesus. He doesn't need you to bring anything. He just wants you to come to him. He'll cover you. His forgiveness is available because of his death on the cross. So bring him your sin and shame. Bring him your broken heart. Bring him your fears and anxieties and receive his grace and love because he loves to redeem. That's why he came. That's what we remember this Christmas season. And it's what we look forward to in the second coming. And secondly, take his yoke of grace upon you. Trust in him, whether for the first time today, maybe you've never heard the gospel described this way, you've never heard Jesus, maybe you've never been in a church or never really looked at the Bible. Today could be the day that you say, I want this grace, I want this forgiveness, I want this joy, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Or for the thousandth time or the 10,000th time, today can be that day. Take his yoke of grace upon you. He's the gift He's our joy, and if your faith is in him, you are secure forever, and that's good news. We're gonna enter into a time of communion. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. And in this time, we at, at Hope Lower Town, we practice what we call open communion. You don't need to be a member of this church or of any church. The only thing that we would ask is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you've trusted him for the forgiveness of sins, that you've accepted his grace. We'd love to have you join us. There's communion cups here and here on, on the tables. Come up at any time during the next couple songs. Take communion. And as you do, just come to him. Bring him yourself and receive his grace. Let me pray for us and we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the chaos that our sin has brought, your eye was always in hope and on redemption and you've proven that by sending your son and in him we have redemption through his blood. As we look at this Advent season, our savior took on flesh, God himself uniting himself to us so that we could believe in him. So I pray that for all the children we dedicated. I pray that for all of us in this room, God, would we believe in your gospel would your spirit move now as we take communion and as we sing? Would you be honored? Would you help us sing joy to the world? Would you help us praise you now for your grace? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.